This episode is brought to you by Ben to Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Learn more at bentotable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. And when you use code HRN for a new subscription, you get $20 off and HRN gets $10. Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live! Well, yes, but I'm, I'm on the Heritage Radio Network, but again, we're recording from wherever we happen to be. Uh, I'm in the Lower East Side, and Stas, are you back in uh, Stanford? Yeah, for good. For good. For good. Like, you like you literally have zero footprint in on the island of Manhattan right now. Zero footprint. Like, like zero, like nothing, nothing. Not, not a bed, not a toaster. Nope. You you are now a Connecticut resident. Yep, for now. Mm. For now. For now. For now. That was uh, all right. Uh, well, and we got uh, Matt now in Brooklyn, still wearing pants in the in the pseudo booth. Am I right, Matt? Everything about this was true. Yes. Yeah. All right. And we have uh, John from his uh, internet challenged Murray Hill. Undisclosed location. How you doing? Actually, up at the Africa Center right now. Whoa! Yeah. Why don't you talk about that? So John's at the Africa Center. The Africa Center is the place where, had the COVID not shut everything down, we would currently be having our African slash American exhibit from the Museum of Food and Drink, uh, and it is still there, installed, just waiting for us to be allowed to let people in to see it. Uh, so how's it going up there? It's good. Uh, we're moving out of the old museum space in Brooklyn, so I had to bring a bunch of stuff up here. Um, and yeah, it's really awesome to, I mean, awesome and heartbreaking at the same time, but seeing the exhibit, you know, it's 90% of the way up and it looks so good. I'm looking at the quilt right now, which is, you know, 16 feet high by 27 feet uh, wide, made up of 400 quilt blocks, each one represent, representing a different African-American culinary figure is contributed to our nation's cuisine, and it looks awesome and it's going to be really cool when this opens up to the public and everyone can come see it so uh, how many people are you there with uh me and uh jack debbie debbie's husband so just the two of us yeah so uh do you just run around the exhibit going that's what i would be doing yes that's exactly what i'm doing yeah not doing anything else yeah 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 that's what i would do yeah i mean i can't wait for that thing to open again yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to look really, really good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm presuming, do any of you have any interesting food, cooking, or drink-related, uh, you know, quarantine stories from the last week to share? Uh... <laughs> you guys, the words. Hey, I don't know if I you know this. asparagus dish with, like, this poached egg dressing. So I soft-boiled the egg and then blended it with sherry some of that good sherry vinegar some of that good mustard and i was just shocked at how much that tasted like a hollandaise and well i mean it's all the ingredients just cooked in a different order yeah yeah exactly but it was just like so on the point and uh, i've never been able to make a hollandaise it always breaks on me so this is going to be my new go-to way of doing that have you have you tried the harold mcgee uh you know the the simple way you just mix everything and heat it 
No, I have not. You gotta, yeah, you gotta do the Harold McGee, the Harold McGee simple, simple hollandaise where you just throw all the crap into a pan and then melt it into a hollandaise. Um, okay. The theory being, if you never break the emulsion of the butter, you never break the emulsion of the butter. So he doesn't use clarified butter; he uses whole butter. Because like the original hollandaise is like a huge pain in the patootleheimer. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. Harold Harold uh, fundamentally treats it as like a, um, you know, like you're just mounting like you're mounting butter at the end of a sauce when you're making it, and so he just does it that way. So okay. I mean, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'll have to do that But I've never tried yeah. a, 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 a. How many degrees did you say your egg was? Uh, one forty-seven for an hour. Seven. God. Like, again, I cook eggs in Celsius, my friend. It's not deep frying. Hold a second. One forty-seven Fahrenheit in Celsius. <laughs> Fahrenheit. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, obviously, but I'm trying. I can't oh. do that. <laughs> Six. It's almost 64. So 60, you're doing an almost 64 degree, degree egg. But freaking John, who is a, uh, is a, a Belgian style person, a, a Francophone and a Francophile, is cooking his eggs in Fahrenheit. Kel, kel horror, as we say yep. in English. <laughs> kel horror. Uh, anyway, I've right, never tried that. Sounds good. Uh, what about I actually did have I had I had a cooking issue for you or more it was a thing that I was wondering about while doing it. So a few weeks ago I met up with my friends for a socially distant hangout on Cape Cod and my uh, the guy who married us actually Philip had been out foraging and gave us a bunch of mussels. So we came home and cooked up this uh, what, it was like a green curry muscle, muscle dish that we were sort of emulating from this place in Chicago we like a lot. Um, and as I was cooking it, it was giving me like <laughs> agita because I, you know, we're cooking the mussels in the broth and I'm worried like, well, what if one of these things is just filled with mud or something real exciting? And now we're cooking that in the broth we're going to consume it in. And it made me wonder, do restaurants never do this? Like, do they always cook them off to the side and then add them into Like, how, how do restaurants actually handle the uncertainty of what is within your muscle? Uh, yeah, I think they just take the crapshoot, my friend. Like, they, really? we, you know, yeah. We, well, we buy them in sacks. We don't forage them. And then they have the tags on them, right? And then typically you'll scrub them. And then if you, you know, if you're like me, you sit there on each one and you rip the beard out and then you make yeah. sure and you make sure that they are um, you make sure that they are closed and you throw away the ones that won't close when you tap on them if they're open. Right. Uh, and then you're also supposed to throw away uh, any of them that are too light because obviously those are empty. But the dreaded one, the one that uh, your boy Anthony Bourdain used to, to dread uh, was the mud filled so heavy, uh, closed, dead, uh, death muscle. I have never actually seen one out of a commercial package ever. I've gotten plenty of dead ones that I've thrown away. Um, I've gotten plenty of ones where it has excess beard. You know what I mean by beard, right? The attachment. Yeah, totally. Because we, yeah. we did all we did all that stuff. The beard ripping is real fun. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Well, remember though, you're getting them off of the actual ground. Like most modern muscles are grown on kind of like these vertical, uh, you know, like substrates hanging down where they kind of lift them up like garlands of muscles attached to these things and they harvest them. So it's not like people are going out 
uh, and, and like, uh, you know, like ripping them off of rocks and they're not attached with like, you know, to seaweed or any of this other stuff. So I just like, uh, John or Anastasia, have you ever encountered in a, in a purchased muscle sack, a, uh, a, one of these, uh, you know, mud filled muscles that you hear about? No. And I look at every, what about you, John, you ever seen one? No, I haven't. I used to work at a restaurant where we had mussels on the menu. Yeah. And I never, never saw those. Yeah, give me some, give me some moule frit action. Moule frit, moule frit. Yeah, you moule like that stuff. Ass. You love that stuff, right? I love it. Yeah, yep, I do. So, yeah, well, being you know Belgique, you know you gotta love that stuff. What exactly. are they? What are yeah. the? What are the? What are the Flems? They're not really. What are the Flemish people? What are? What do they call mussels? I don't know, actually. Probably Man, you hate more. the Flemish. Man, you hate the flavor. Yeah, I don't know. I need to. I need to brush up. You're right. And you're you right. said your dad speaks the language, for Christ's sakes. He does. He never taught it to me, but I guess I can learn it on my own. I shouldn't blame him. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, I've never seen one, so I wouldn't worry about it as long as they are sound, like you know, like they they are closed accurately. I've never seen one of those. Now, if you're foraging wild on the Cape, which by the way is where he did uh, Bourdain did some of his early cooking. And I have also foraged wild mussels in on the Cape and in Maine and not really come across that problem. But I imagine it would ruin the entire pot it was cooked in. Yeah. <laughs> that was I what mean, that was what was freaking me out. <laughs> if you if you but you would know it. It's not like it's not like you would it's not like you would cook a mussel, it has some sort of sewage stank mud in it, and then you open up the pot to smell the white wine and the onions and the and the garlic and the, and the herbs and all of that. You're like, oh, white wine, garlic, and oh, Jesus, sewage. You would notice. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, you know, uh, yeah, that's just my, my guess is that, you know, if even a sousson, as we would say, of uh, raw sewage in your, in your muscle broth would, I think, affect the flavor to the extent that you would notice. You know, that's my guess. Yeah. Now... Uh, interesting story about the Cape. Where on the Cape were you? Uh, well, they had gotten the mussels on uh, in, in Wellfleet, but I was we were in Sandwich. Okay, so uh, I've never gathered mussels in Wellfleet. I've gathered clams in Wellfleet, but uh, when I was a little kid, we used to stay out near Provincetown, and there's this jetty out near Provincetown that like go goes out and cuts across like that little point there up by Provincetown. Long, long jetty. And um, I used to go down there and we would get mussels and also periwinkles, right? And then, and this is in the 70s or 80s, right? And so we would get pots and pots of periwinkles and pots and pots of mussels. And nobody cared, like at the time, like there was no one, there was no game, you know, game, like fish wardens or any of that stuff kind of pestering us at the time. Not that I remember. We even used to get quahogs. You know, which are the big clams we would get quahogs. For those, you, you walk out in the sand and you plant your you plant your heel and you can kind of feel them with your heel if you smash your heel into the bottom of the of the of the of the you know the sand and then you pull them out. Big big quahogs, like you know, uh, bigger even than your normal stuffed clam kind of a situation. So we would make them into chowder. And again, back in those days, you know, they probably should have given us grief for not having our proper tags, but no one ever did. Um, and so we were gathering mussels and like I say periwinkles and the periwinkles there are real small. So we used to, we used to kind of boil them up in huge, 
huge pots and just sit there with safety pins and you pop the trap doors off of them and then just like kind of pull them out with safety pin and eat them and you have to go real fast because they're so small that if you don't go fast enough you burn more calories eating them than you do like from the actual periwinkle so anyway but we found out later that those weren't necessarily the safest because the hotel that was right next to it was dumping their sewage into the bay at the time so you know there's other things that you can't even taste that might get you. You know what I mean? Yeah, that. <laughs> Does that explain a lot about myself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, listen, nowadays, I doubt anyone's allowed to uh, dump any kind of raw sewage into anything. So you're probably, uh, you're probably fine. We, I mean? we, do, we have a question that just came in on the chat. Nah, question. You were on the uh, air. What's up? Or you're not on the air. Matt's going to read your question on the air. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. David J. Foster. First of all, he says, sounds good. That's not a question, but thank you, David. Uh, it also says, Yo, Stas, a question for your dad. I'm at my dad's in Florida, and his Meyer lemons are coming in nicely. I guess this is a question for her dad. I'm not exactly sure how she's going to answer. Uh, the leaves are looking a little yellow, though. Any advice from him to keep these trees healthy, nitrogen, other trace minerals? Okay, I should have read this first. It's a question for Stas' dad. First of all, isn't that, wouldn't that be Stas' mom? Isn't she the plantologist? Or is it your, your dad is the citrus user, but isn't your mom the plantologist? But my dad deals with the trees so ah, all right uh, so, what, so what do you think are you authorized to speak for him no i don't i can ask him but i know they don't do well i can ask him whoa, right. whoa, whoa. wait a question for you, the future you, you sounded so you're like i don't really i'm not gonna ask him eh, okay like what was that all about because they don't really do much to the stuff around the house because it all just sort of grows without issue they never have without without growing issues. Yeah. And they've never had a, a problem. I can ask. I will ask. Never had any sort of blight. You know who we're gonna have on eventually though is uh, our boy the fruit explorer, and I'm sure he knows everything about leaves getting all effed up. Yeah. That's David true. Carp. That's true. Yeah. Or wait, were we gonna have him on the show or were we gonna have him on our unhappy hour? We're gonna have him on an unhappy with the LA mm, contingent. I see. All right. And Stas, I'm assuming since you were uh, moving out of the city that you did nothing of interest or you would have said so? Uh, yeah, I have done absolutely nothing. Well, uh, I have been cooking up a storm. Booker has been cooking up a storm. Booker baked his second cake this week. He did what's called a pinata cake where I don't know where, yeah, I don't know where he came up with this idea. Yep. It's the tallest cake I've ever seen in my life. It was four full-size layers, like not half layers, like full-size layers. He had to make like a giant batch of icing, like the biggest batch of icing that my KitchenAid would handle, and then kind of hollowed out the middle and, and put the M&Ms into it. It worked, uh, worked quite nicely. He thinks he wants to go do uh, cakes now. He thinks that's what he wants to do for a living, is be a baker. Yeah, nice. yeah. And uh, Ben to Table sent us in our, uh, in our little, uh, in our Ben boxes. Now, Nastasia always has fish in her box. Is that true? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nastasia always has quite a fishy box. Uh, but I've been getting the get grains. This Get this out yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. I've been getting the, <laughs> the grains. And so he sent us this um, uh, main grains, red fife wheat. And red fife is a, is a kind of a, a heritage wheat that uh, people are growing out here on the East Coast. And it makes, it's a very, you know, full flavored thing. And so Daxon started cooking with that. So maybe I'll, I'll post that uh, later. He posted his, uh, I mean, he made his uh, red fife wheat bread you know, whole, complete whole wheat, but he calls it, uh, you guys watch Bob's Burgers ever? No. No. I know you don't. 
You don't either? None of you guys watch Bob's Burgers? No. Oh, my God. It's great. Anyway, they have have a a Thanksgiving episode where they're making fun of, like, heritage turkeys. In fact, Heritage Heritage Meats tweeted it out. It's called the Riverbrook Lake Farms Turkey, and it's, get it, Riverbrook, like, three different bodies of water. Riverbrook Lake Farms Turkey, and each turkey has a name, and Bob, one of the protagonists, is, like, waiting for years to be on the list so he can get this magical turkey. And then the, uh, hilarity ensues. Anyway, so Dax calls it Riverbrook Lake Farms uh, bread. So we've been, we've been cooking with that. And I, I, I cooked the cassoulet beans. But get this, Stas. So Dax, all during the week, Dax just goes into the fridge and cooks whatever he wants and doesn't tell me, right, for, like, lunch or whatever. Whatever he wants. So, like, I had all these sausages. I had all these things. I was like, I'm going to make a mock cassoulet, a mock cassoulet right? in the rice cooker. And I can get onto rice cooker beans because I have a question on it later. And then when it comes time to do it, he goes in, I go in and there's nothing there. There's none of the sausages left, none of the anything. And I say to him, I was like, Dax, you have to let me know if you're eating stuff that could be construed as a dinner food that I haven't specifically bought for you. You have to let me know because I don't go and check the fridge every 20 seconds to know what I have. I know what I bought. I put it in there. I cooked the dinner. That's all there is. And he's like, no, you have to tell me that you want something for dinner or I will cook it. Now, who's right? With two teenagers in the house, you should just assume there's nothing in the fridge. Yeah, but I buy all this stuff. I mean, like, Stas, you know what it's like to buy a bunch of stuff and expect it to be there to cook dinner and you, like, you know, you plan for the week and... No? I mean, Am I wrong here? I don't have anybody that's taking stuff in the fridge, though. You used to. No, not, like, living... I mean, what about Count Chocula? You yeah. planned on having that Count Chocula. Yeah, but that's, like, sausages are different. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, you're like it's beyond the pale like the fact that someone would take sausage out of your fridge is and, like and you can't hear them like smell them cooking and like think hmm those might be my sausages and you're i'll be gone i'll be gone for a couple of hours <laughs> i'll be gone doing something i'll be ta- you know I'll be gone for hours you know and then like you know the sausage is there and then you know a couple days later the sausage is not there i just thought you're not supposed to or you're not going out that much during quarantine i can walk i by the way am antibody positive so, yeah, know. congratulations. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, feels good. Uh, so, uh, which, but thank God, early on, I did do the hardcore quarantine because I would have been spreading it like a weasel because I, in fact, had it right at the beginning. I think Nastasia also had it right at the beginning. She'll find out when she gets her antibody test because Nastasia and I were in a truck on the way to, speaking of Maine, on our way to oh, Maine. Yeah. We came back. The entire city shut down, and then the next day, Nastasi and I felt bad, and it it was it was the COVID. It was the COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Stas? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, that's the best possible outcome if you're st- now feeling good and find out that you have, in fact, already had it. Yeah, but get this. You know how they want people with antibodies to donate blood? Yeah. Yeah. So here's the issue. So the, the thing where you sign up to donate blood if you have antibodies is outdated. It was apparently made before they had the accurate antibody tests because in order to donate blood with antibodies, you need to have come back with a positive COVID test. But when I had COVID, they wouldn't give the COVID test to people who weren't like on yeah. the list and we weren't on the list. So even though it's obvious that I had it because my antibody test came back positive – 
it's not obvious enough. I don't fit into the people whose blood they want because I never got a positive and then a negative result on a COVID test. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. It seems pretty stupid. It does, in fact, seem pretty stupid. Oh, uh, and if we have time later, uh, the other magical thing, uh, I'm on the grain kick now, which Nastasia hates any of these things. I was able to purchase an old grain mill, which I put out on the on Twitter. It is unavailable. Nobody's ever heard of this mill, so I'm going to be I'm going to be uh, hot rotting this uh, this five inch five inch uh, stones. It's got five inch stones, 750 watt motor. Uh, from probably the 70s. I think the one that I have is called Thompson Mill from Mesa, Arizona. And we know that uh, Thompson made at least 1,257 of these uh, things, unless he pulled an Astasia and started numbering at 1,000 just to make it seem like we had made a lot. That's a classic Stas kind of a move. But I think these things were made to a pattern by people because there's an identical mill that was made in Beaverton, Oregon, called the, the, the Little Gem Mill, which is almost identical. So I wonder if there was some sort of pattern that people could buy in the 70s that allowed them to make these things at home and just sell them out of their, out of their houses because all of the addresses that I look at uh, where these mills were mailed out of, the one in Beaverton, Oregon, and the one in, in Mesa, Arizona, like they're look like houses. They don't look like industrial buildings where people will be making this thing. So I'm still looking for information on these uh, mills and I'll tweet out more pictures of them or maybe Instagram when they're done. Speaking of Instagram, Stas, what was your magical PR move? Why don't you tell them? Uh, I sent a Sears all to Jimmy Fallon's house in the Hamptons and right when quarantine happened. And I would watch it every night, except for last night, because I was feeling super depressed because everyone makes fun of me for watching it. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to watch it anymore. And this morning I watched it while I had coffee and he used the stairs all. What? Yeah. We also he talked about it, right? Talked about it. Well done. Right, 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 right. So here's, here's what happened. Nastasia literally went on Amazon and just sent it to him with no note, no nothing. Well, and you didn't want him to think it was coming from a flack, right? You wanted him to think that he accidentally ordered it and had no idea or forgot that he had ordered it. But then instead he thought that Dave Chang sent it to him, Dave Chang, you know, our, our partner. And thank God, because if it, was, if it had been you and me, it's not like he would have called us and used it on the air. <laughs> you know what I mean? So anyway, good, good for us. And speaking of Searsalls, more news. So there's a there's a bootleg there's several bootleg Searsalls. For those of you that don't know, that right. we sell uh, you know we sell this thing called a Searsall, which turns a torch into a handheld broiler. Anyway, there's a bunch of people on Amazon now selling bootleg Searsalls, but there's one that looks almost identical to ours, and people have been buying it and then complaining to us to John, who's our customer service representative, have been complaining to him that they're that the that they've been throwing off quote unquote black metal dandruff, right? And then when we dig, dig deeper into it, we found out, cause I was like, oh man. And here's a secret. We were looking at a company to manufacture, a different company than the one that we used to manufacture the Sears all. And they sent us a proto and it threw off black metal dandruff. And we're like, nope, we're not gonna use you. And I think those are the people who are selling the bootleg uh, Sears alls. So if you get a bootleg Sears all that throws off like, you know, flakes out of it, don't order the bootleg. Don't get the ganker. Get the real. Yeah, how infuriating is that, Nastasia? Well, we know who it is, so I'm not surprised. It's got to be them. Look, people, 
like the reason it costs what it costs is because of the fancy, fancy, fancy metal that, not the outside of it, it's the fancy, fancy metal that is uh, in the screen on the inside of it. And the other thing that's not so cheap is the, is the insulation. So like there's a, anyway, they're obviously, they're not using the same stuff that we're using. They're using some sort of bootleg garbage. And so please don't try to get John to replace your Searsall that we didn't even make that you bought from some bootleg patent infringing weasel that I wish would fall off of a cliff, right? Yep. Yeah, no one likes a patent infringer. Well, I don't know. Here, you know, people, the thing about patent infringement, infringement is this. Like, let's say these guys sell a thousand Searsalls and their profit is, you know, what, whatever it is off of that, right? That's all that Booker and Dax can get in damages back. So like a patent troll, I'm not going to name names, but like, you know, everybody's favorite patent troll in Seattle, when they are trolling a patent, they'll choose a patent where there's millions of dollars in damage and they have their own team of lawyers so it doesn't cost them anything extra to go after the people that have quote unquote infringed the patent. Because you guys know how patent trolling works, right? What, in patent trolling, you buy a patent that nobody knows exists, that, that the person who's infringing on it doesn't even know they're infringing on. And then so you buy the patent for almost nothing because it's quote unquote worthless. And then you go and you find out that some big company has been infringing on it to the tune of millions of dollars in profit. And then you sue them for that millions of dollars and then you just skim that off of the top. That's why it's troll, patent troll. Anyway, so, but for us, a small company without the money, how the heck are we going to go after, you know, how are we going to hire our lawyers who charge, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars an hour? How are we going to hire them to go after a company to get back like 15 grand? It doesn't work, right, Stas? Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Now, if they knowingly infringe, we get triple damages, but even so. Nah. This episode is brought to you by Bend to Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Today, I'm opening my second box from Ben, and it looks like it's a box of tinned fish. I have sardines in butter, which I love, and I just like putting that on great bread. Whoa, in butter? Join it down. It's Bless. tinned sardines yeah. in butter? It's tinned in butter. Yeah, yeah. Mussels from Galicia and marinade. What should I do with these, Dave? You can make a risotto and just put them on top. Yeah. Yeah, I'll make a risotto and put those on top. Or I'll just open the tin and have a glass of red wine. Next thing. That's a smarter <laughs> move right there. Next thing, I have a... Ooh, sturgeon. Can, oh, you like that. Canned sturgeon uh, in olive oil. So you got the Booker box. I got the Booker box. Go to bendatable.com to start your own monthly subscription. Use the discount code HRN to get $20 off a new subscription, and Bend to Table will donate $10 to support cooking issues and all of HRN's programming. Uh, Eric from Montreal writes in regarding whiskey sours. Hey, Dave, Nastasi, and the gang. I was a bartender for a few years and learned how to make a half-decent di half whiskey sour with egg whites. Uh, one Christmas, I made the mistake of offering it to my dad, who now not only loves them, but will also offer one to every family member during our family gatherings. Presumably, though, your dad is offering that you make them, uh, Eric, which is, uh, you know, sorry about that. Um, 
Since the cocktail uh, takes a long time to make, a good foam needs a good 20 seconds of uh, monkey shake. Monkey shake is my old style crazy shake. Uh, it's not really the nicest thing to have to make uh, anywhere from four to eight in a row. Now, you listen, Eric, you know, you know you can do probably two and a half to three per, so that's two and a half, two and a half, five. You could probably do five at a time if you split them, but still, I, I get your point. Uh, I would probably do it that way if I was only doing them occasionally. Uh, anyway, how would you do it? He asks. I have an uh, Easy Whipper and a Vitamix. Also curious to know how you would scale it for an event. Been listening for years. Thanks for all the good tips and the hours of entertainment. Eric from Montreal. Uh, P.S. In a previous show, you mentioned that Montreal bagels were fine but lacked salt and were therefore inferior to New York City bagels. Where would I go in New York City to test this claim? What about you? you uh, John, you got any good bagel info? You got any good bagel info for me? I'm blanking on the name, but on the corner of Metropolitan and Lorimer in Brooklyn, right off the L stop on the Lorimer, is really, really good bagels. What style of bagel is it, though? New York style. Really, well, what I style of New York style? I, I don't know. Well, I didn't know there were different styles of New York style. Uh, oh, of course, man. Of course. There's like, for, your first question is do you fall into the camp of like, uh, let's go back to the 80s. 70s and 80s. Do you fall roughly into the Essa bagel camp, which is the puffier bagel camp, or do you fall more into what would have been back in the day, the H and H bagel, which is the bigger whole, kind of denser, less puffy bagel? Both of them much larger than the old Union bagel, or than a lot of the old uh, bagel shops around that make kind of smaller, smaller bagels. But so you first have to divide yourself into: Am I Essa style or not Essa style? And if you're Essa style, Go, go to Essa, by the way. Go to Essa. If you're, but like, for instance, even in the neighborhood where Essa is, which is, I think, First or Second Avenue, like around 20th Street somewhere, they moved their location, so I don't know exactly where they are now. Uh, even if you like, like, in that neighborhood, some people like Tall, which is another one near there. I'm not, I don't really care about Tall. But then, you know, where, and where I was from, uh, when I started really caring about New York City bagels when I was at Columbia, you know, in the 90s, because before that I was just eating, you know, Westchester bagels. Not that the Westchester bagels were bad, but, you know. Uh, so up there, it was Absolute kind of had the, the bagel that everyone was going for. They were apprentices from Essa and so had Essa-style puffy bagels. But you also had uh, Columbia bagel, which a lot of people liked, which was uh, a denser style, less puffy. So it all depends on what you like. Nastasia, how do you like the bagel at the uh, at the Teresi's bagel place at the at the? Uh, it was I can't remember. I had it once. I don't remember. What's the name Very of that? Long. What's the name of that place again? I don't remember. People love that though, right? People love their bagel and their big giant bagel tubes, or like where it's like a big like a fruit de mer platter, but instead of fruit de mer, it's like fruit de bagels with the cream cheese and all that. Didn't people like that stuff? He did, yeah. And then some people in New York like the pseudo-Montreal, which is a Montreal style with salt in it. And so that would be like um, like black seed. But I don't have a lot of experience with black seed. And then I've also never been to Myland. Have you ever? Have you guys ever been there? Yeah. No. How are their bagels? Great. Really great. Wait, John, you said no, you don't like them? I have not been. Oh, all right. Yeah, I haven't been because what am I? Am I going to go to Brooklyn to buy a bagel? What am I? They're, they're in um, Rockefeller Center too. Oh, now they are. The nomad. What am I going to go all the way to Rockefeller Center? I got I got I got to either cross a river or like you know cross the mystical divide above Forty Second Street to. Uh, At the Nomad Hotel too. Wait, down in the twenties. Uh -huh. All right. Okay. 
I will. I will go. Well, when when there is a New York City again, I will. I will go try them. Now, back to your question. Um, okay, look. If you want to do a post foaming, what you're going to want to do is uh, do a um, do you know shake it with ice, just in shakers probably, and then you can do a. a, a you know, some sort of a whip shake afterwards in an EC. The EC is going to cost you some money though, because you're going to fit a ma uh, like the maximum you're going to get is uh, six drinks if you're limiting the drinks to uh, in a one quart in a one quart EC or one liter EC. You're going to get six five and a half ounce drinks into that. Uh, and it will work, but then you're going to have to pre-chill your EC, and then you're going to have to, you know, pre-dilute and chill, you know, get it all diluted, nice and cold, put it into your EC, then foam it, then foam it into the glasses. It might sputter, it might not. It would probably work. It might be good. Remember to put the um, the bitters on top to kill the wet dog smell, or allow your egg white to crack your egg whites out uh, early in the day and let them air out like in a quart container in the fridge for like six, five, six hours to get rid of the wet dog before you make uh, your whiskey sours. So that could work, but I think it might kind of uh, cost a lot. The problem with using a VitaPrep is, is that um, it's adding a lot of friction. So it's getting appreciably warmer. So what you would have to do if you were going to use a, a VitaPrep is throw a couple of ice cubes in with it after you've done your dilution, or even just add the, add, uh, you know, add the right amount of ice cubes for the dilution you want, blend it until the ice cubes are gone, and then hit it and um, hit it with a couple of more ice cubes because the friction in a VitaPrep is not uh, insubstantial. In fact, they, you know, the VitaPrep people say that you, it, you can heat soup in a VitaPrep to boiling and I use it to heat things uh, and it's, it's hundred, it's like a several hundred watt heater at the end of the day um, being dumped into your thing. So you're constantly heating whenever you're VitaPrepping. You might be able to get away with a, uh, putting individual drinks into quart containers and hitting them with uh, stick blenders from the side. So using the old foam trick with a stick blender. And the way that works is you tilt your cup at an angle, you put the stick blender in, you have part of the bell on the stick blender in the surface of the liquid and part of it out. And as the blade comes out of the liquid into the air and back in, it's whipping air into your uh, into your product. And that's how all the people used to make their carrot foams and whatnot back in the day. But again, I think it's probably gonna be easier just to shake them. Now, if you really want to do it, there's two machines that you might want to look at. One is a, uh, a couple of years ago, people were making custom uh, cocktail shakers with giant cranks on them. So you'd walk up to them, it would hold two giant shakers, you would crank it and it would go and shake the two shakers up and down. I will just say this, I used one in Edinburgh, Scotland about three years ago and I broke it. Every time I used it, I overcranked it and broke it because I was so uh, was trying to get the maximum amount of shake in. So I think maybe if you were just going to sit there and go, blah, 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 maybe it would work. But if you're really going to go to town on it like I did, you're going to break it. And Stas, I could break pretty much anything though, right? Oh, yeah. Were you with me in Florida when uh, they brought out that new Breville? No, I was there, but you were... I don't know why we weren't together. I was we with were... Chris Young fluffing for like uh, Guy Fieri and Giada. Okay, we were there. I don't know why I wasn't with you. Yeah. So That's you... when I stayed in your hotel room and you got real mad. Because I told you I didn't want you to. Yeah. And you did anyway. Because I was in a real unsafe situation in my hotel. How's it? Uh, anyway. So like, anyway, what happened there, two things that I remember. One, 
is so Chris Young from at the time modernist uh, modernist cuisine uh, and I were literally the science fluffers for the Food Network's like pavilion at South Beach. And we're there and we're doing a, like a question answer kind of like we do here, like dog and pony show. And then the real star would come out and be like Giada or like, you know, Guy Fieri or like uh, the, whoever was the most famous cake baking guy at the time. And so this little girl raises her hand to ask a, a question. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, I made this necklace for Giada. Can you give it to her? I was like, little girl. Giada has never met me and will never meet me. She doesn't care whether I'm alive or dead, but I'll leave it on this station in case she sees it. I didn't actually say that to her. I just said yes and took the little pasta necklace that this little girl made and like draped it over whatever we were using. Felt bad. I felt bad. You didn't go find Giada? What? You didn't go find Giada? Uh, it wasn't like that. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but when you're a fluffer, you never meet the talent. You just sit there, you do, yeah, you're like, Arazamataz! And then they pull you off. And then, and then the handlers come in, in like this phalanx, and then like the talent comes in. You don't get to meet the talent. The, no, the fluffer's not allowed in the green room. I'm sure her assistant or someone of your level was lurking around, don't you think? I don't know, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so right before then, uh, the person, Adele, who was repping Breville, came in with a blender top and was like, this blender is unbreakable. And I said, unbreakable, huh? She's like, yes, it's completely unbreakable. So I took it out of her hand. I hurled it onto the cement ground and then started ju jumping up and down as hard as I could. And then like, I was like, okay. I mean, I totally bent it and like abraded a whole edge of it off uh, from the concrete. And she's like, are you out of your freaking mind? And I was like, you said it was, I couldn't damage it. You told me that it was impossible for me to damage it. You know what I mean? So don't tell me <laughs> stuff like that unless you actually want me to take your word for it. How do we get to that? Anyway, uh, so I broke the shaking machine. Wayne Curtis at a Tales of the Cocktail event many years ago uh, did a panel. I was on the panel and he bought a paint shaker so one of those things when you go to like a, a lowe's or a home depot or a true value or a mom and pop hardware store and you order a can of paint and they put the color in and then they whack the lid back on and then they put it into one of those things that holds one gallon paint cans and then go yeah 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 and wayne curtis loaded one of those things with the full batch of a of a ramos gin fizz and the ice knocked the lid he bought stainless steel fresh paint cans that were stainless steel and fresh and then shook them up in his paint shaker and those were delicious those were delicious so i highly recommend if you're going to do this a lot or you know if you want to get your dad some kind of crazy gift and your dad has enough space in in his garage wherever he lives go get you a paint shaker and some brand new stainless steel things because then you could be making uh, whiskey sours by the freaking gallon, but you are required. You are required to say uh, or you know call them like whiskey sour a la Wayne Curtis. Anyway, answered. Answered. What do you think? All right. Yep. You know. Yeah. Seems like it's answered. All right. Devin wrote in, hey, Nastasia, for the record, I am 30 years old, male and single, and I buy whatever toys I can slash want. How does that fit into what uh, into your thinking? Um, so yeah, he's in the minority, but he's still, is he white? Did he say what he's? No, you didn't ask people to give you their race. 
Yeah. Well, okay. So male. So he's definitely majority of that minority of being allowed to buy. He says single though. Didn't single didn't say minority. didn't say single in or out of a relationship. Right. So we don't really know. We don't we don't really know whether so it could be just thirty year old male and like no one can tell me what I need to do about anything. Like I can I can leave the lid up on the on the on the toilet. I can, you know, I can leave my toothbrush in, in the kitchen sink. I can do whatever I want single. Or like, you know, I have limits single, you know? Yeah, and this is just like one slice of time. In fact, he, he was not single until he strongly asserted his ability to buy whatever tools he wanted, and now he's single. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Let me tell you people, like, like being single is not worth being able to leave your underwear on the floor. Just not worth it. You know what I mean? Anyway, uh, in my opinion, in my opinion, it's just my opinion. Everyone has allowed their own opinion. So it's two questions. Devin has two questions, one for Nastasia and one for me. Which do you want first? One for you. All right. Is it worth getting the double-walled EC Whipper rather than the regular? Is it okay to put hot liquids in the regular EC? Yeah, don't buy the double. The double-wall EC is an EC thermos. So it's for the very rare person who wants to put something hot or extremely cold into an EC Whipper charge it and keep it hot or cold for a long period of time. So even though it's the size of a one liter, it only holds half a liter. So it costs a lot more and is a lot bigger for the amount of space that uh, it takes up. If I wanna keep an EC cold, I will throw it into a, into a vat of ice. And if I wanna keep an EC hot, I will put it into a bain-marie on the stove. So for me, uh, I would never get the double wall one unless you very specifically need it. All right, so uh, it's not that they're bad, uh, but uh, and you could put hot or whatever in a regular EC. Nastasia and I, I mentioned this before, did a video with nachos where I literally don't ever do this, where I blowtorch the side of an EC to turn it into a into a high pressure vessel for cooking uh, beans, beans. But don't do that ever. Don't even say I did it. Don't mention it to anyone. It never happened. Now, Nastasia, for you, and try to give a real answer other than just, eh, all right? Okay, this is, this is a statement and then you're gonna do an agree or disagree, all right? Mm-hmm. Okay, statement. Pasta is just a vehicle for sauce and toppings. Pasta, is in, pasta inherently has minimal flavor and always takes, uh, the, always is a base for a sauce flavor and never a highlight. Agree or disagree? Disagree. Disagree. All right. Well, again, you're saying you're going to any more, you're going to elaborate on why you agree or disagree? Or is this the punishment you get for asking you a question? If that's the case, then you could use any type of pasta as long, like brand, I mean, right? It could also be overcooked, undercooked. Well, that's a texture issue. Because the sauce is the highlight. See, I think, I think what Devin's missing here. Let's say you remove texture and you're just talking about flavor. Is pasta more than a texture to you? Is it more than a texture in a substrate? Yeah. So what's the flavor of the pasta as opposed to the texture of the pasta? Or how much of the importance of the pasta is texture and its ability to hold on to sauces? So texture both ways, texture in the mouth in terms of the structure of the paste and texture of the surface 
uh, and that and that interior texture such that it absorbs flavors in different ways. Well, but you're saying so. I don't know. So in other words, some pasta acts like some pasta doesn't absorb any flavor at all. It you know. It, it's just it might as well be a slide, and the and the pasta just you know fl I mean the sauce flies off of it like a slide. None of the sauce sticks to it. It doesn't really absorb anything. It's just kind of there, right? And so then whether or not it has a good interior texture, tooth texture, right? It still doesn't absorb a lot. That's why you get all these freaks who love their bronze dyes so much because it produces that characteristically rough surface, which they say traps more sauce and presumably there's more micro cracks on the, and some people claim that their drying techniques create more or less kind of micro cracks into the pasta that allows sauce to get into the pasta more. I'm saying there's, so there's that aspect. And then there is, does it turn to mush, right? Did I, you know, do, do I use a, right? So those are two separate problems, are they not? Yeah, but like I'll I'll eat plain pasta. Like I'll munch on plain pasta and think it's good. Right. You know. But what about like whole other than texture? What about like flavors? For instance, like you know, I used to dump basically anything into my pasta to give it color because it very little flavor adjustment, right? Like you could dump you could dump ketchup into a pasta to make it red, and it's still going to taste pretty much the same, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, so what about the flavor of the pasta? Like different grains, like whole. I'm trying to get you to say something about the flavor of pasta here, Nastasia. Yeah, I mean, I think his question's ridiculous. I think that pasta's great, and it's not just a vehicle for sauce, and that's stupid. And I don't even know how to answer it because I completely disagree. And if he doesn't understand it, I can't convince him otherwise. So you're saying you're from a different planet, and so you can't even start a discussion because the discussion has no meaning to you. I don't. I'm trying to think of how a, an Italian would explain it because you know they would never. His question is would be ridiculous, also. Um, but I can't think like them right now. Okay. So we'll wait until you can travel back to Italy. You can okay. ask someone, and then you. I can mean, what do you think, Dave? What do I? He didn't ask me. So what do you think? Um, a lot of questions people don't ask me, but you always ask me to answer. That's fair, I guess. I mean, uh. I think, look, pasta is always, I think there's a base flavor to pasta that you're just subtracting out. And so it's the, it's the flavor of the grain and a particular, like when you are boiling pasta, even if there's no sauce, right? And you pull mm -hmm. it out, there is that aroma of cooked pasta that is like, like instant and knowable from like two blocks away almost. When someone's boiling pasta and pulls it out and drains it, the steam comes into your face, that smell of pasta, right? So yeah. that is kind of like the background note. That's like saying that rice doesn't have a flavor. Of course rice has a flavor, you know what I mean? That's like when you're cooking rice, I mean, even if you're cooking a non-aromatic rice, like a, a, you know, so in other words, it doesn't need to be jasmine or something like this. Any rice, when you have the so, rice kicker going, you're like, oh, that smells like rice. That smells delicious. And so it's not a strong flavor, but it is the overall background to everything that's happening. Wait, so Dave, you could say that about sushi, right? You're like, well, the rice is just there for the fish to be on top of. Right. Whereas real sushi people are like, you know, the rice is like hyper important, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, so I think it's more of like an argument like that. I think the problem that Devin's having is that Devin is just subtracting in his mind out the entire important base of a uh, 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 flavor, right? And so, you know, just think about 
think about subtracting out of your life the smell of rice cooking or think of subtracting out of your life the smell of that pot of pasta that you're draining in, in your in your, you know you just drained and that smell coming up subtract that out of everything and sure if you don't think that's unimportant then like the additional flavors that are added to pasta are relatively unimportant but that base is the base everything else is built on which is why all you need is like a little parmesan and butter and you're good to go you know what i mean um yeah. anyway that's my feeling on that do you agree with that or not agree with that i do agree oh, wow Nastasia agrees with me something is wrong <laughs> take her it's, take her to uh, the doctor what a, what a day uh we are yeah. we, got, we got about 10 minutes all right, Don writes in, hello, Dave the Hammer and Matt in the booth, but not in pants. Matt is wearing pants, Don. I'm assuming. I am wearing pants. I'm wearing running shorts, but close enough. Oh, those aren't, those aren't pants. What kind of, how long are running shorts? What's a running short? Is a running short like a, a 1970s? No, I'm not wearing my shortest pair of running shorts for you. But are they like, are they like, do you see the movie Ping Pong Player? <laughs> no. Oh, all right. Well, in Ping Pong Player, he wears these like, these like certified like uh, table tennis uh, shorts that might as well be like hyper short. You know what I'm talking about? Those hyper short running shorts. Those, oh like, yeah, super no, short I have a pair of those, and I respect the show enough to not be wearing those right now. I'm wearing my longer running shorts. But are they like Bermuda style? Are they like are they like Fat Man workout shorts? Like how long are they? I don't know. They don't. They almost. They they're a few inches above my knees. I don't know. Hmm. What do you think, Stas? Does that count for wearing pants? Yeah, I guess so. You're okay it's with it? What about, I'll admit what? it's on the edge. It's on the edge? All right. Sean, what are your yeah, thoughts? Is that okay? sounds absolutely fine. Matt, you can dress however you want over there. Oh, <laughs> look, at, look at John. Look at John. So nice. Anyway. Uh... Oh, by the way, and before I read the question, for Nastasia's research, Don is 40 years old and married, and my wife tolerates my kitchen gadgets. There you have it. Okay, so um, a few weeks ago, Dave talked about cooking beans, grits, and other grains in his Zojirushi rice cooker. Not only Zojirushi, my friend, Zojirushi fuzzy neurologic induction. Uh, and my, mine, it turns out, I, I looked at it the other day, I don't know if I said this on the, on the air, is like uh, 17 years old, at least at this point. So it's, I'm, I'm petrified that it's going to die again. It died once, was dead, would not come back to life. I said this before, I unplugged it, like put it on an altar, walked away for a week, plugged it back in and it came back to life. And I don't know why. Um, and it's still alive. Thank goodness. Um, a few weeks ago, Dave talked about cooking his Oshibushi rice cooker. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what settings you use for various grains? I overcooked a batch of beans on the brown rice setting, and I'm going to try the shorter white rice setting next. Any tips you can provide would be great. Uh, thanks for keeping the show running. It's a bright spot in the week. Don. All right, now listen. First of all, like Zojirusi, uh, for every couple of months, I try to figure out what the different settings on the Zojirushi rice cooker actually mean, right? And if you try to ask the Zojirushi Corporation, they will not tell you anything about the programs of their rice cooker to let you know what's kind of going on. So, and their rice cooker programming is a lot more complicated than the old, you know, push a button, completely analog that's just using, uh, you know, the way that old school rice cooker works is you have a little 
a little like a temperature sensor in the bottom. You put the pan on, it pushes the sensor down, it shows it its contact, it turns on the heater, and then it's, it, it brings the water in the pan up to boiling, uh, and then it basically sits there. And remember, the pan can't get appreciably hotter than 100 degrees Celsius or 212 Fahrenheit because there's water there and it's at atmospheric pressure. And so the temperature that it boils at is going to be the temperature that it boils slash steams at until all the water is gone. And then as soon as all of the water is gone, the temperature is going to start rocketing up. Uh, and then as it rockets up, right, the thermostat's like, I'm done, and then shuts off. And then the next level of fanciness up is to then put it into a keep warm function instead of having it in a cook function, right? So that's how, so then like the question is, what is Zojirushi doing other than that, right? So the Zojirushi can do things like one, monitor the rate at which things are cooking, right? So like I can dump, I can dump energy into the rice as fast as is humanly possible and steam off the water as fast as humanly possible or I could do it slower. So I've always wondered whether that's what's happening in brown rice versus in white rice, let's say. But I did some interesting experiments uh, this morning because when you go on Zojirushi's website, they will not tell you spit. They will not tell you anything about the actual functioning of their rice cooker at all. Uh, they, just say, they just say this, there are three main categories of rice cookers. This is from Zojirushi. And get this, this pisses me off with each representing a different level of rice deliciousness. So like the way Zoshirushi sells their rice cookers is you can buy the meh ice, ice rice cooker, you can buy the meh delicious rice cooker, or you can buy the hey, hey, hey delicious rice cooker, right? And by the way, I have the hey, hey, hey delicious one, but they won't tell you why it is that the different programming or how it's different. But I got some interesting information for you. If you go, uh, if you, there's the two main settings that I've researched uh, this morning, and I, I'm gonna, I'll do some more research for you, Don. But the two main settings I looked at today were standard white rice versus, um, versus quick cook. So when you hit quick cook on white rice in the Zojirushi, it takes it about 20, 25 minutes, which is about what it would take you on the stove, right? Is that how long it takes you to cook rice, guys? Yes. Yeah. So... Uh, that's about how long it takes. So fine. So what's it doing in the regular one where it takes an hour, a little over an hour to cook? Well, turns out that it doesn't start boiling the rice right away. What happens is, is it raises the temperature of the water that the rice is soaking in up to 125 degrees Fahrenheit and holds it there for like half of an hour. And then after that half of an hour or 40 minutes of holding it at 120, uh, 125. So just getting the rice to soak at a faster rate than it would if it was soaking on the countertop, much faster, by the way, if you've ever tried to soak beans in hot water or rice in hot water, right? So it's soaking it at that higher temperature. And then only after that, turning on the boil and steam, and presumably that gets to them a more evenly cooked, better rice grain for the way that they do it. And so that's what's happening in all of the longer rice cycles. There's some amount of elevated temperature pre-soak that the Zojirushi is doing, because if you put it on quick, it boils it right away. Now, the other thing that's happening in brown water, Don, and I think this is brown, brown water, gross, brown rice, as opposed to what is happening uh, with uh, the regular thing is that brown rice, because of the bran on the outside uh, and because it, it takes quote unquote longer to cook, needs more water. So I think what's happening to you and the reason you're getting overcooked beans is you're just 
adding too much water to it. Because when I've been doing it in my, uh, in my rice cooker, like I've had to sometimes add more water to it because the beans come out too kind of al dente. And it also depends on the beans you're using. Uh, I cooked uh, these, uh, whatever, you know, Rancho Gordo is selling as uh, cassoulet beans, and they took a lot longer and took a lot more water than the, um, their Christmas limas, which were also delicious. All from Banda Table, by the way, uh, which were also delicious, but cooked a lot faster and with a little bit less water. So it depends on how much water you're in. Now, what I would recommend that you do going forward is use quite a bit less water than you're using now because there's nothing wrong with opening your rice cooker. So first of all, just do it once, right? Add, uh, I forget what it is. I think it's a one to four ratio water to beans, something like this, right? So add the one to four, hit the cycle that you want. And I chose brown because I thought it would cook it more gently and burst fewer uh, beans, but I still, ha I now have to measure what the actual brown rice cooking cycle does in my Zoshirushi. But I would stick to that uh, a ratio or even a little bit less, right? And then check it midway through and, or, or three quarters of the way through and see how much water has evaporated and then add more if you need to and then come by your perfect recipe, which will be bean to bean based on that. Is that a, a decent answer guys yep. or no? Yep. That seems pretty good. All right. Josh Kuhn wrote in. Joshua Kuhn wrote in. Uh, hey, Dave, Nastasia, and others. That other, all you had to say was Matt and John, dude. All you had to say was Matt and John. This is like in, uh, in uh, the original <laughs> Gilligan's Island. I know I've said it before, but it was, you know, many years ago. The original Gilligan's Island theme was Gilligan, the skipper to uh, the movie star. Wait, the Gilligan... Uh, skipper to millionaire and his wife, the movie star, and then it went and the rest here on Gilligan's Isle. That if you look at the first two seasons of Gilligan's Isle, it was it was it was Gilligan, Skipper two, millionaire, uh, his wife, movie star, and the rest. And all they had to say was Professor and Marianne, and that's all they had to say. And but instead they just said and the rest. You just Professor and Marianne, Matt and John, Joshua. I don't know. Very rude. 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 And everyone knows, I mean, not to talk, everyone knows that, like, you know, Mar you know Marianne and Professor, that, that's the, without the Marianne and Professor, what show do you have? What show do you have without Marianne and the Professor? We get that all the time about cooking issues. So, like, what's the point if John and Matt aren't on? <laughs> right. Right. Gilligan's Island without Marianne and the Professor is... Like, who's going to make a telephone out of coconuts with no professor? Right? <laughs> right. You know? Who wants to deal just with Ginger and no Marianne? Not me. We're actually recording right now via a coconut telephone device that I built, which is why it works so well every week. Exactly. Well, then Gilligan's going to take the telephone line and throw it back into the ocean so that they can't get their freaking... Anyway. Uh, so Joshua, I will still answer your question. I recently purchased a Wintner 1.6 quart self-cooling, by self-cooling I think you mean contains its own refrigerator uh, as opposed to the motor overheats and cools itself, right? Uh, ice cream machine with a batch time of about 27 minutes. Ooh, that's a long time, Joshua. And it probably isn't as good as the ice and salt machines, but the convenience factor wins out for me. Uh, I'm trying to get a smoother ice cream, and while eggs are the single greatest thing in the world of food, I don't really like the taste of yolks in my ice cream. Before I go any further, Joshua, have you tried low-temperature pasteurized egg yolks? 
Sam Mason, I've said this many times, is like uh, an ice cream savant. His ice cream is delicious. And he always uses very low temperature. He actually used to sometimes use raw egg yolks, but very low temperature pasteurized. So well below normal creme anglaise temperatures, very low temperature because he also did not like that smell of egg yolk in his uh, egg. So try it and see, see what you think first. Uh, but I've been adding some gum mixes, nine part Arabic, one part Xanthan, and it seems to make it a little bit smoother. Uh, I need to run more tests to get my favorite base recipe from my ice cream maker. I wouldn't use Arabic Xanthan as a, so Arabic Xanthan is going to be a good emulsifier. Uh, it's very good at emulsifying over a range of temperatures and a range of dilutions. But um, the, the Arabic, I, you're, I don't really think you're having an emulsion loss situation. I think, um, I mean, most stabilizers, you're going to use like some form of flavor-free guar and or carrageenan for gelling effect or even gelan for gelling effect uh, and like locust bean or something like this and or locust bean for, for texture. Uh, but they also make ice cream thickeners. Um, uh, and also like those things should inhibit ice crystallization or the formation of large ice crystals. So it's good to have a stabilizer like that. Uh, when you're trying to freeze over a longer period because you want smaller ice crystals. I will say this though, the more stabilizer that you add, the, um, and maybe Xanthan Arabic, I never used it in ice cream, but maybe that is like one of the famous ice cream ones. I just never used it. The more stabilizer you add, the more flavor masking you'll have, and therefore the more flavor you'll need to add. My family can eat lots of ice cream, but not enough to start throwing things together willy-nilly for side-by-sides. I'm looking for general advice on where to start. Uh, I don't want it stretchy, so d definitely don't, don't use... Um, Guar plus gelan, uh, just creamy with smooth ice crystals. Uh, is this the proper gum system to use? Uh, what percentages are reasonable? I would just get the ice cream stabilizer that, that, that they sell, professional ice cream stabilizer. That stuff's on point. Uh, how would heating the ice cream base change the gum's effectiveness? Well, uh, Arabic and Xanthan don't need to be heated, but certain things like LBG do. So it all depends on the, the, the gums that you're using. Now, here's your recipe. You're using 500 grams of cream and 250 grams of milk and 150 grams of sugar and three grams of gum mix. That is a lot of cream. That is a lot of cream. Uh, and so I'd be worried at 27 minutes that you're also getting some butter churning effects out of it. So if it tastes kind of like over buttered or cream or over churned, I think a stabilizer is also going to help in that way. Because that's a lot. That's a lot of cream, wouldn't you say, guys? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joshua was the guy also who uh, kills and eats geese. Thank you, Joshua. Every goose that you kill is one that's not pooping on our ground down here in New York. So keep on killing those geese. And also gave us the information on the uh, power usage of the Excalibur. And also, this is apropos of right now, Joshua wants to know why the strict time constraint? I've always wondered this, but especially now. Well, yeah. am, I, am I the one who's supposed to speak to that? I don't know. <laughs> Be, because, uh, because there, because there today, are... <laughs> what? Today we have all day long. I've realized... So there's two things that I like to do in my life, which is one, watch Saturday Night Live now. It's Jimmy Fallon. And two, do my workout class, which keeps me sane and mentally whatever, right? But I've decided, who cares? So with the radio show... We can go as long as you want. So you're saying we can go through till 11.30 at night? So you could go. No. Well, today I, I put till 2.30 p.m. So, you know, my schedule is clear till then. No, no, but, but, like, but, like, but theoretically now that you really just said F it and somehow 
Somehow yeah. your lack of watching Jimmy Fallon is being blamed on the radio show now. I don't know how, but you're saying because no. you because you uh, yeah, stopped watching Jimmy Fallon due to the radio show, we could theoretically go till 1130 right. at night. That All one's right. more we that one's more for the China call like that. I, the, I understand that it's not like like family takes priority, but I don't have a family. So those are the two things that I keep for myself. But for the radio show, we can go over as long as you want. Uh, and the only time for the for the yes. workout is is right after. But the, this is where oh, yeah. the this is where the lie is, Nastasia, because it used to be workout. after the radio show we would always go eat pizza. But Dave, it is quarantine time, and I can't change Taryn's new workout one p.m. thing. So well, maybe we should do the radio show at eleven thirty. Yeah, but we'll still go over. They'll still be like we've. we've yeah, but if you're gonna go over by half an hour, then right. it's eleven thirty to one. We, to we gotta break. go. We gotta Hold go up. because the other reason, the secondary reason, is because the radio station itself has a schedule and there are other shows on it. And we all right, listen, 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 listen. All right, on the way out, Joshua also wanted us to talk about an Instagram post with uh, dry ice in one of those mocha uh, stovetop espresso pots. I guess we'll talk about it. Next week, obviously, I have safety issues. We'll talk about it next week. And also, Capri Sun uh, has done some initial mustard work, uh, but has never actually tasted the Verdad Ghent mustard. So, well, I guess we'll talk about that next time. And I think we still have some questions that are unanswered. So if we haven't answered your questions, uh, re-ask them, and John will ask them uh, for us next week. Is that correct? Yep. Yes. And we, and we did not do a Classics in the Field because I was told that I already talked enough about Pine Marches On from uh, Boston's uh, Strauss last week, and so I don't need to talk about it again, and that's what I prepared to talk about. So we'll be back with more Classics in the Field. Uh, hey ho yeah, uh, next, next week. True or false? True. All right. See you guys next week. Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.